0: So in 1828, a four-year-old boy takes a rope. He ties it between two chairs and finds his calling. Right Before evil Knievel, before Houdini, before even circuses were a big thing, this guy named Charles Blondin was walking the tightrope between two chairs as a little boy. Now, he ended up going to a school that was dedicated to gymnastics. He grew to be just about five feet tall, 140 pounds. He went on to be famous for his tightrope travels across the Niagara River from the U.S. side to the Canadian side. So if you don't recognize his voice, you probably can see the picture in your head of a tightrope run across Niagara Falls, right, and a guy walking across. That's this guy. He's the guy who started that. Now his manager described him this way, he said he was more like a fantastic sprite than a human being. Had he lived a century or two earlier, he would have been treated as one possessed of a devil. He could walk the rope as a bird cleaves to the air. So on the morning of June 30th, 1859, about 25,000 thrill seekers arrived by train or steamer and they dispersed on the American and Canadian side of the falls. Shortly before 5 p.m., Blondin took his position on the American side, and he began to slowly walk across. Now, children were reported to be hiding behind their parents' legs. People were fainting as they watched it. Halfway across, he decided to sit down on the rope, uh, and he sent down a line to a ship that was underneath him in the water, and he pulled up a bottle of wine, started to drink it, right? And then he, he safely made it across, and then took a 20-minute break and then was back at it again on his way back to the U.S. side. Now, he did this trick so many times that it wasn't uncommon for gamblers to bet on his completion rather than his failure to f- and falling to his death. Uh, it didn't start that way, though, right? It took time for them to, to believe that he could do it. I mean, he did flips across his rope. He even walked across the rope with his manager on his back, right? Talk about faith, right? There's another story about him that's become kind of a legend. He was known for wheeling a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls, and um, he would wheel the wheelbarrow filled with rocks, and then the crowd was in awe and and just continued to cheer. Eventually he did it blindfolded, and they cheered again. Uh, He asked, do you believe I can do it again? And everybody cheered, yes. He asked if they believed he could do it with a person in the wheelbarrow, and everyone cheered, yes. Then he asked for a volunteer. Right? And then there was silence. Right? One version of the story I read said he asked a man who was cheering the loudest to get in, and the man refused. See, there's a difference between believing someone can do something and actually trusting them with your life, isn't there? Right? There's a difference between enjoying the show and becoming part of the show. All these crowds gathered to see this man perform amazing feats, stuff that nobody had ever done before, maybe stuff that nobody even thought to do before, stuff that we wouldn't even think a human could do. And he performed them with such perfection that everyone believed in him. But ask them to get in the wheelbarrow? No way, right? (laughs) That's another story. So we're in our second week of our new series looking at the Gospel of John, looking at Jesus' signs, and then looking at his I Am statements down the road. And we know Jesus's signs, they drew crowds, right? They were miracles, really, that caused many people to believe in him. But today we're going to look at the story of a desperate father who needs to make this jump, this progression from simply knowing that he needs Jesus' power to trusting him with the most precious of lives, the life of his own son, right? As we make our way through the scripture this morning, we're going to focus on three significant progressions of faith that pop up. We're going to look at desperation, determination, and deliverance. These three progressions of this father's faith as we go through desperation, determination, and deliverance. And so we're going to talk about how each of these relates to the development of this dad's faith and our own, right? Because everything that's written in Scripture is written for our instruction, too. So we're in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Let's look at the theme of desperation. Now, last week we were in chapter 2 of John, right? We looked at how Jesus turned water into wine at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, uh, Jesus's home area. And he goes from there to, uh, to do even more miracles. And when he travels to Jerusalem for the Passover, he starts to draw a crowd, right? He, gra- he draws even more crowds, uh, jumping now to the end of chapter 4. And then he heads back to the place where his first miracle happened, his homeland, where he says uh, in verse 43, a prophet has no honor in his own country as he walks into his homeland. And yet when he and his disciples get there, Jesus is welcomed with enthusiasm because his countrymen, his family members, they've all seen everything that he's done in Jerusalem. He had made this big impact there, and since he turned over tables, we didn't get to read that part, but he turned over tables, he kicked out corrupt merchants from the temple, and he did so many miracles in Jerusalem that people started to know who Jesus was. And those folks, his family, his friends, they were all there, too, because that's what you did during the time of Passover if you were a first-century Jewish person living in Israel. And so Jesus made this splash, and people want to know more, right? They want more of him. It's in front of this backdrop that we meet this desperate dad in verse 46. It says, He went again to Galilee, Jesus Uh, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. And so Jesus is back at Cana in Galilee where he turned water into wine, and John opens this scene for us by introducing a royal official who has this sick son in Capernaum. And now that area was about 20 miles from Cana where Jesus was. So think about from like downtown Hyannis where we are here to walking to downtown Falmouth, right? Everybody walked back then. So, and there were, there were a lot more hills than there are here. Let's just say that, right? Hills that had names like Mount This or Mount That, right? Those kind of hills on that kind of walk, right? And so when Jesus calls this man, uh, when John calls this man a royal official, Right? He's likely talking about an official who worked for King Herod. and Maybe we've talked about him a little bit before, but if you don't know who King Herod is, he was the Jewish ruler who had been put in place by the Roman government uh, to rule part of Israel. So they thought it would be a good idea to put uh, a Jewish ruler, because they had subjugated Israel, so they figured we'll put one of their own in charge of them, call him a king, right? And Herod was one, just one of those faces of the empire that they thought would ease their rule a little bit. So he was often called King Herod, but he didn't actually hold the title of king. Uh, Later in the book of John, he goes on to behead John the Baptist because he gets called out for adultery. Uh, Another interesting fact, the dad, Herod the Great, the dad of Herod, uh, he set off a genocide of baby boys trying to kill them uh, to kill Jesus before he was born out of fear that Jesus would grow up to take his title. Uh, king of the Jews, right? And so Herod was never in favor of Jesus and he was never a friend of Jesus. And so think about this royal official now, this royal official of Herod, right, coming to Jesus uh, and what what that means, right? Now his son is sick, right? This is a man with resources. This is a man with money, a man of prestige, right? We find out later that he even had servants, right? But even with all this, he finds himself in the kind of position that all of us will experience at one time or another. A position of helplessness. A collision with our humanity and, and our limits. With our inability to right certain wrongs, to overcome the frailty of our bodies, to enact the change necessary to end disaster and to bring about thriving. Right? All of us will hit that wall at one time or another. And, and some of us have hit it pretty hard lately, right? I think about just videos, the overwhelming uh, videos of the fires that keep coming in the Pacific states that have just increased and increased, smoke filling cities, uh, planes dropping thousands of gallons that appear to just have the power of a half-full Dixie cup, right, when they drop it on these gigantic fires. I'm grieved when I hear about people who have to be forced to leave their homes. I have some friends who had to evacuate. They've got to come to bear with their physical limitations and protecting their homes as they evacuate to stay alive. We have a lot of resources. We have a lot of know-how now more than ever. But when the fires become unmanageable, we find ourselves praying for heavy rain. Sometimes that's what life feels like. Right, and our best efforts amount to uh, to the power of a half-full Dixie cup. Right? There are some things we just can't prevent as much as we'd like to. And now this man's son is sick, Right, 20 miles away. And in those days, again, they walked everywhere. So he's a man of resources, and he's run out of fixes. And he's heard that Jesus has come back to Galilee. And so John says he went to him. Uh, It's possible that he walked all the way from Capernaum to Cana just to see Jesus. And when he gets there, the scripture says that he pleaded with Jesus to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. So this dad walks 20 miles. It's an eight-hour walk if you make no stops at all. And he's in sandals, so he probably stopped, right? Maybe it was an overnight journey. He gets to Jesus. He pleads with him to come down and heal his son because he's about to die. And he asks him to come down because Capernaum is actually significantly lower in elevation, uh, right right on the Sea of Galilee. So it's about 700 feet below sea level. He's desperate. And when we're desperate and when we're in the dark, we're feeling around, trying to grab whatever it is we might think works, right? What's going to get me what I need? We've all hit that wall, right? The collision that makes us realize we're limited. And we wish we could do more to fix what's broken. We could could do more to fix what's lost, what we're losing, but we can't. Things are not how they're supposed to be. And we just internally know that, right? I mean, a dying child might reveal that to you, or maybe it's a failed relationship. Maybe it's a difficult marriage. Maybe it's a dreaded diagnosis. Maybe it's chronic depression or other mental health struggles. Right? We're all fully aware that it could be better, that it should be better. Right? And on our own, we're, we're feeling our way through the dark, and we're trying to find whatever it might be that can make it better, whatever it is that might solve our human problem. And this man is doing the same. And in his stumbling around, he's heard about Jesus, and he's desperate enough to give him a try. We have no record of this guy seeking out Jesus. There's no indication that he's any kind of follower of Jesus. No interaction that we have uh, before this moment. And that's okay. Sometimes it's these moments that drive us to Jesus, and God intends for that to happen. So desperation compels us to search for answers, but we're going to see that desperation, that's just the start. Right? This dad encounters a little bit of a roadblock where desperation could turn into despondence or it could turn into determination. We ask and we don't immediately receive, right? So, so we quit or do we keep asking? Right Now he comes to Jesus asking for this healing and look how Jesus answers him. It says, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, this is kind of reminiscent to his answer to uh, Mary, his mom, in the last passage when she came to him at the wedding and said, they're out of wine. And he said, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come, right? My hour hasn't come. But we talked about what Jesus was doing there. He was responding to problems with words of truth that don't seem like they're solving the problem, but they're actually getting deeper and deeper into the ultimate problem, not just the problem at hand driving us toward a deeper truth, a deeper faith, a deeper understanding of who he is. So Jesus responds to this father's request by addressing all the Galileans around him, by addressing his countrymen. He tells them, if you don't see signs, you won't believe in me. So they're drawn to these miracles, these temporal fixes for eternal problems. They don't care about who Jesus is and and what he's really there to do. Jesus's miracles, they weren't just intended to solve today's aches and pains. They were intended to point to a day when aches and pains will be no more, right? A day of full restoration. And he cares about today's aches and pains, but he also cares that you don't trade the giver for the gifts, right? Don't get me wrong. The pains of life often lead us to God. He wants us to come to him with our pains, I mean, we just commemorated the 20th year since September 11th, right, since those attacks, a tragedy that, that a lot of people mourn in a personal way and even today still mourn, and it jarred us. It changed our world. It made us aware of our frailty, and you know what happened following those attacks? People flocked to churches, right? They were looking for an answer, and some stayed, but a lot didn't. John is teasing out the nature of faith in this story. For many of us, faith started with a sign, right? I've heard folks who talk about objects that God used to remind him of his love. They've even talked about miraculous healings or answers to prayer that were so specific that it just led them to believe that God was real. Things that to others might seem like more of a coincidence, but clearly were the work of God in their lives. That happens, right? It's just that our journey of faith can't stay in that place. If it does, our faith starts to rot. See, Jesus is a person, and a relationship with him is dynamic. So what happens? right? What happens when the prayer goes unanswered? Or, or what happens when you don't get the answer you wanted? right? And On a personal note, just about a year ago today, I stopped praying for a miracle. Right after a year of praying as my mom battled cancer, right? Bringing her to appointment after appointment, sleeping in the hospital with her, praying with her and for her. And she died on October 9th. And I will always pray for a miracle because I believe that God can do it. And I think we got one because she lived 10 months longer than she was supposed to. But I prayed for more than that, right? I prayed for more than that, and I should pray for more than that. I will always pray for a miracle. But when the miracle I want doesn't come, where does that leave my relationship with God? For me, it's realizing that God's love isn't only shown through his power, it's also shown through his presence. See, there's nowhere in the Bible where he's promised me, where he promised me that my mom would be healed, right, there and then, just like that. But the promise of his presence, that is all over scripture for me, for her, for you, for believers in Jesus. And when I'm in grief, God has promised me his nearness. God speaks promises to pain. If our hope is in instant miracles and not based on the actual promises of God, we will grow despondent. We will get discouraged, right? We need to push past the surface and dive deeper. Am I willing to get in the wheelbarrow, right? Am I willing to trust God, not only with my needs, not only with my desires, but with my very life, Right? Scripture tells us that apart from God turning, turning the lights on within us, we would never see Jesus for who he is. But sometimes that work involves us pushing and to move beyond the superficiality of our relationship with him. And here Jesus is, is giving this push. It's not heartless of him to say this to this dad. It's not cruel. He's not teasing this father or in any way trying to add to the grief in his life. See, this dad, this, this dad, he was searching for pennies, and he stumbled upon treasure. He doesn't even know it. He's looking for a magical transaction, and he stumbled upon the God of the universe who wants to have a relationship with him. Right? And Jesus isn't going to waste this interaction by just doing what this official asks him to do and then both of them just carrying on their lives and going on like, like meeting Jesus makes no difference, right? More is needed and God's going to provide more. So Jesus says, you people, you Galileans, my brothers and sisters, my cousins, you Israelites, right? you Cape Codders, you people, whoever you are, Unless you see a sign and wonders, you won't believe. And this desperate dad responds, not in despondence, but in determination. right? Determined to clear the obstacle of his own shallow faith in Jesus. Sir, the official said to him, verse 49, come down before my boy dies. So this is where desperation becomes determination. See, it's not only that, that uh, the determined have faith. That's not really necessarily how it works. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's that those with faith have determination. Faith leads to determination, right? Determination in prayer, like this dad shows. Determination in pushing past obstacles. Determination in understanding God. Faith seeking understanding, right? It's being skeptical but diligent at the same time. Like, do you have questions about God? Questions are actually good, right? They shouldn't keep you from Jesus. They should cause you to search diligently and honestly for the answers. Do you feel like God has been silent in your life? Keep asking. Keep seeking. You might be in a season where you're supposed to push through barriers to a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Jesus. We get to see this man's faith progress in this passage so much that, uh, so much that it's said that in just this dad repeating his pleas, right? Come with me, heal my son, right? And and what does Jesus say? Verse fifty. Go, Jesus tells him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him, and he departed. He believed what Jesus said to him, and he departed. Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. And notice how Jesus doesn't actually go with the man, right? The man wants him to go with him. He says, come down, go with me, right? Because every magician, every doctor, just about every prophet in the Bible that came ahead of Jesus, when they healed, when they revived the dead, when they provided, when they performed miracles, they were on site, right? They were there. They were present. And Jesus just tells this man, go, Right? Nothing else. No special instructions, no potions or special prayers. He gives him a promise. Your son will live. That is the word of the Lord for this man. Why didn't Jesus just go with him? Right? It was 20 miles, Right, but in the Bible we see Jesus being interrupted and he walks to faraway places with people. Jesus was and is generous with his presence. It's one of the most beautiful gifts that he can give us, right? He was willing to be with people. He was willing to be hands-on. He was willing to touch people that nobody was willing to touch, but not this time. Why? See, these signs, these signs are intended to show people who Jesus is, and there's something more at play than simply to heal someone. Jesus is revealing something about himself, It's just that he's not just a prophet, right? He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a healer. Jesus is the promise maker, right? Jesus is the promise keeper, and he makes this man a promise, right? A promise that only God could make good on. You and I cannot make promises like that to people, and, and, and in some places, there might be people who think that they can just shout that out to you, that somebody's going to be healed and declare that to you, and that that's just going to happen. You're going to walk, and that's going to happen, and then it doesn't happen. Understand that God is the only one who can make those promises, right? He's the only one who can speak and make it so. Let there be light, and there was light. Jesus is this God. Your son will live. And so he sets off on this second overnight journey back to this little boy, this dad, uh, and he believed what Jesus said to him. He believed his word. He gets in the wheelbarrow, right? And we've illustra- we have an illustrated children's book in, in, in my family that we love to read. It's actually in the family room. It's called The One O'Clock Miracle, and it just tells this story in a beautiful way. The, the pictures are beautiful. It shows the dad walking uphill and downhill overnight, hill after hill, running, stopping to breathe, then walking, then running with the words echoing in his mind, Your son will live. And Jesus' word proves to be true. Right. Jesus spoke it. And let's look at what happens in verse 51. It said, while he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. So before he can even get home, his servants have gone out to the road to tell him the news that his boy is alive. Jesus doesn't make empty promises. Right? Just even thinking about the significant, uh, the significance, that significance of that passage that adds weight to a song that we sing a lot, Waymaker, right? We've been singing that song often. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. We sing those words to God repeatedly, even when I don't see it. You're working, right? Now, the author that must have had this passage as inspiration when she wrote that song, right? It's too perfect. Even when we don't see it, he's working. The father asked his servants what time the son got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. This father didn't know that his son had already been healed as soon as Jesus said it. All he knew was that his son would live. But Jesus healed him at that very moment, one o'clock in the afternoon. So specific, right? As we've walked through this passage, I've tried to point to the bigger things, right, than just the miracle. But I don't want it to be lost on us that Jesus cares about the small things, too. Right? It's not that he cares less about the small things. He cares deeply about them. We see him in the scripture uh, weeping with friends at the tomb, ta- making uh, such small yet big meaningful gestures in his interactions with children. And Jesus cares. Right, He cares about this little boy. He heals this little boy. And he cares about that little detail that would happen right at the moment when he was asked. Didn't have to be, it could have been right when the dad got home, but that his servants would be able to come back and tell him it happened at one o'clock, right? The father has his son, and he has more than that, right? This father whose faith goes from desperation to determination now experiences full deliverance, right? True deliverance. His son is delivered, rescued from death, but that's just the start. Right, he and his whole household believe in Jesus. Not just that he can do miracles, right? Not just that he would heal and did heal his son, but that Jesus is the promise keeper and the Messiah, this coming king who is said that to, to set all things right. Right, not just the one who can heal the sick, delivering from death, but the one who's gonna deliver the world. Just a chapter before this, Jesus says in John 3.16, this famous passage, try to listen to it freshly this morning. For God lo- loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And in the same way we talked last week about how Jesus' own imminent death was foreshadowed at the wedding, uh, we can't get around the fact that God is the Father who gave his Son. Right, The Son in our story is saved and a marker of a greater salvation because Jesus, the Son, decided to die in our place. Right, He died in his place and in our place. See, we search around in the dark and we pick up a lot of things that can harm us right? We pick up a lot of things that can harm us and others, and sometimes we pick up whatever we think is going to stop the pain, right? We search around in the dark, and even when we see light, sometimes we choose to stay there because we're just used to it, right? It's familiar. It's safe because, see, the darkness isn't just around us. It's inside of us, but Jesus is our light. Jesus is the light in the darkness, On the cross, he took the darkness for us to the point of death, and he was raised from the dead out of darkness so that we could have everlasting life with him in his presence, free from abuse, free from illness, free from our own internal torture. And when you're not feeling God's love or, or when God feels distant to you or it feels like he's sent you ahead without him, just remember his love for you is proven on the cross of Jesus. And it's promised to you in the resurrection, right? The promise keeper has said he will be with us until the end of the age. And God's not like a dad who breaks his promises, and maybe you're here today and you had a dad who made a lot of promises that he broke. That's not God. He's not selfish. He doesn't play mind games. He doesn't hide himself to torture us or to cause us to lose our way. He loves us. He loves you. And he wants to be with you. Right? He wants your good. So let's come to him in our desperation Let's come to him determined to push through our own superficial faith to see Jesus as he is. And let's rejoice in the deliverance that he's promised us.